Would you pray with me as we turn to God's word? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, we are nearing uh, the end of our study of the character Peter in the book of Acts. Um, This might be a little surprising to those of you who've been following along because we are still actually in the first third of the book of Acts, but Peter's narratives are actually coming to a close. Today we'll be in chapters 10 and 11 uh, in the book of Acts. The last significant mention that we have of Peter in the entire book happens in Acts 15, where he's noted as instrumental in the decisions that are being made at the Council of Jerusalem. After Acts 15, uh, Peter is not mentioned. Acts focuses on the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul after chapter 15. So with only a couple narratives remaining, we arrive today at perhaps one of the most significant of all Peter's stories. Certainly, the narrative with the most consequence for the church and for most of us here today. Acts 10 tells us that Peter is in the city of Joppa. Uh, Joppa is the ancient city uh, that the modern city of Tel Aviv is built on today. He is staying at a house of a, a man named Simon, who is a tanner, and he orders some food because he is hungry. And as he's waiting for the food to be prepared... He goes up to the roof, which overlooks the beautiful Mediterranean Sea, and he decides to take a little rest. He falls asleep, and he sees a vision that God gives to him. Just a couple days earlier, God had given a vision to a God-fearing Gentile man, whose name was Cornelius, and he lived in a city called Caesarea Maritima, which is about 60 kilometers up the coast. And the vision that God gave to Cornelius was a vision of Peter on a roof. So Cornelius sends messengers to Peter who arrive right as he is waking up from his vision. And this leads to a meeting in Caesarea which would change the trajectory of the church and human history. This group of Gentiles, they receive Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they receive salvation in his name. So when asked about this account of what happened, Peter actually recounts the story in Acts 11, 1 through 18, which is our scripture for this morning. I'm going to invite Lauren forward to uh, read our passage. If you would stand for the reading of scripture this morning, and as you're listening, I want you to listen closely because uh, there's some important elements here. Particularly, I want you to listen for the vision that Peter recounts the vision that he receives and recounts to these people, and also the response of these Gentiles to his preaching. Acts 11, 1 through 18. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. 
I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. I'm nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, I want to point out three things uh, from this text that I want you to understand about the story before we hop into what the application is for us. Uh, The first is this. Gentiles were considered unclean to Jewish people. For the sake of clarity, let me remind some of you that there are only two kinds of people in Scripture in many ways. It's Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are anyone of any other nation or ethnicity that is not Jewish. So anyone who's not Jewish is considered a Gentile. We see throughout the Old Testament a really clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles and numerous safeguards that God puts in place to make sure that Israel, the Jewish people, are protected from certain aspects of Gentile life. Not because Gentiles aren't loved by God or cared for by God, but because God knows his people well enough to know that the Jewish people will chase after Gentile gods and they will abandon him. By the time of the New Testament, those safeguards from the Old Testament had been expanded and they'd been codified to the point where Jews were not allowed to associate with non-Jews, with Gentiles. They weren't allowed to eat with them. They were not allowed to be in their homes. They weren't even allowed to do business with them. So first century Jews were considered ritually unclean if they associated with Gentiles requiring them to be purified in ritual baths before they could go to the temple to worship or offer sacrifices or even return to some of the norms of their daily family life. What you need to know about this is that this this idea of ritual defilement was not what God intended or instituted. We understand God's stance towards Gentiles first when Israel is entering the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. 
God commands Joshua to rid the land of the nations that are there, which are all Gentile nations, to drive them out. Not because they themselves are irredeemable or unclean, but because God did not allow cohabitation in the land amongst Jews and Gentiles because he knew, again, that his people would adopt their idols as a god. And that he himself, Yahweh, the one true God, would simply become one of many gods to them that they paid homage to. It was the Jewish leaders over centuries since that time who took God's prohibition against Gentile idol worship and made it an issue of uncleanliness by association. This is why it's so interesting that God gives Peter a vision of a sheep being lowered down from heaven full of every kind of animal. Because for Peter, who was a devout Jew, when God says, eat these animals, he's pretty confused because many of those animals in there would have been considered unclean for a Jewish person, right? Certainly pork and birds and reptiles, those were all unclean meats that he was not allowed to eat. So he denies God three times. He denies. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to eat that. But then God replies, what God has made clean, you must not call profane or unclean. This vision actually doesn't really have much to do with freedom to eat certain foods, nor is it God's proclamation that that the law doesn't matter anymore. It's a symbol about his feelings on Gentiles, on non-Jews, that Peter later recognizes when he says in Acts 10, 34-35, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Before Peter's supernatural experience in Acts chapter 10, he thought that the gospel was really only for God's people, the Jewish people. Peter was influenced by a very strong anti-Gentile attitude that existed among pretty much all Jews in the first century. He would have learned this as a little boy. So, of course, this attitude was unbiblical, and it was not from the heart of the Father God, right? Because throughout Scripture, God is constantly desiring a relationship with Gentiles, and he's allowing them to love and serve him. He's never called them clean or unclean or common on their own. It's humans who did that. This is why he said, what God has made clean, don't call it unclean. This is a massive, massive moment of revelation, Peter, like most Jews, would have spent his life totally fearful of interacting with Gentiles, of being made unclean. There was palpable fear that association would defile any good, upstanding Jew. And yet God opens Peter's eyes to this new reality that salvation is fully available to all people, and they don't need to fear being defiled. These people, these Gentiles, don't need to be seen as unclean anymore as a category. In fact, they're loved, and they're cared for by God, just like every Jew is. It's a watershed moment for the early church. Second thing I want you to know about this text is that Cornelius is noted as a God-fearing Roman. This is really interesting. In Acts 10, it describes Cornelius this way. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people 
and prayed constantly to God. Um, why is it important to note that Cornelius is a God-fearing Roman centurion? Well, because this is not at all common amongst Roman centurions or Romans in general. Roman religion was actually an amalgam of, of domestic gods and demigods and mythological deities. They would have typically worshipped small stone or wooden idols in their home. These different idols would have promised aid for, for various needs that they would have had in their life. So to note that Cornelius was a God-fearing man was significant because that meant that he was a monotheist. He was a monotheist. He believed in one God, one true God. And not only did he believe in God, he led his entire household in worship of the one true God and in prayer. It says that he was devout. He gave generously to the poor and the needy, and he had a robust prayer life. Even though he didn't know who Jesus was, he believed in this idea of one God. And it was these heartfelt prayers to that one God that allowed God to promise to send him Peter, who would share the gospel with him. And God answered that prayer. Even though he didn't know who Jesus was, God answered that prayer. Um, in God's vision for Peter, he is not saying that the Corneliuses of the world, all people, all Gentiles, are automatically saved, some sort of broad universalism. That's not what's happening. Nor is God saying that every human on their face is pure and clean no matter what they do. He's communicating that every human being on earth is worthy to hear the good news of Jesus and to respond to it. That's what this vision is saying. And Cornelius was particularly prepared for this because he was already praying to God. And he was conducting his personal life and his family life in a way that was already God-honoring. I've heard this text preached on in a way that seems to indicate that God is telling Peter that every single group of people and every person is, is saved that they're pleasing just as they are. This is kind of a reductionistic way to read it. The message is that everyone is worthy of the gospel. Everyone's worthy of the gospel. No one is to be categorically considered unclean and outside of the saving grace of God. Everyone should have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and turn and believe in him and receive salvation. Not only this, and this is what fascinates me most about Cornelius, not only this, but God is already at work in Cornelius and in his family in ways that Peter didn't think God could work that way, right? He's preparing Cornelius' heart to respond to Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Third thing I want you to know about this text is that Peter's preaching is an echo back to Acts chapter 2. You might remember in Acts chapter 2, we read about a group of Jewish believers gathered in an upper room when the Holy Spirit descends upon them and alights upon them and fills them to the full, enabling them to speak in strange tongues and to understand one another in a holy spiritual language. This movement of the Spirit spills out into the streets and to all the Jewish pilgrims who were gathered in Jerusalem, and Peter seizes the moment, he preaches powerfully, proclaiming the work of God and Jesus Christ, and thousands of people come into saving faith in Jesus, and that event is called Pentecost. Pentecost. And guess what? Today is Pentecost Sunday. That's why we have the red vestments up here. That's why I'm wearing a red tie. It is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter. 
So did we just miscalculate the church calendar by preaching on Acts 11 instead of Acts 2 today? No, 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 my friends. Because our text tells us that Peter gathers with a group of Gentiles in a room in Caesarea Maritima this time, and he begins to preach. Sound familiar? Proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit begins to move in that room, and the Gentiles begin praising God and speaking in tongues, and many people are added to those who are saved in Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that Acts 10, Acts 11 is often called the Gentile Pentecost. Just as there was a Jewish Pentecost that happened in Acts chapter 2, which was a catalyst for massive church growth, so now there is a Gentile Pentecost that's about ready to do the exact same. So with those three things in mind, equipped with a better understanding of this text and the significance of this event, I have a simple application for us this morning, and it's this. I believe that this text challenges us to be like Peter in as much as we are supposed to refuse to be motivated by fear, but rather to be hospitable to the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter had reasons for fear. Fear of defilement, fear of the Gentiles, fear of their gods, fear of crossing a boundary of association that he had learned from the time he was a little boy. Likewise, I actually think Cornelius had reasons for fear too, right? Fear of rejection, fear of defiling a devout Jew, causing problems. Yet both of these men choose to be obedient to God's leading and to refuse to allow fear to win the day. And God does amazing things because they refuse fear. Um, I have a beautiful modern example of this. I love this story. Um, this is a picture of Mrs. Louise de Graffenreid. Uh, she is 71 at the time of this photo uh, in 1984. She and her husband, this is her husband here, Nathan, they lived in the small town of Mason, Tennessee. Both of them were members at Mount Sinai Primitive Baptist Church, very faithful people. And on a Friday night, she met an unexpected visitor. His name was Riley Arzeno. He was a former Marine sergeant who was serving 25 year, a 25-year prison sentence for murder. Um, along with four other inmates, he had escaped from Pillow State Prison in Tennessee. And uh, several days before this, somehow uh, these... Uh, these fugitives had obtained weapons. Riley had become separated from the other four. And after two days of wandering around and hiding, he was freezing and he was hungry. And he came upon, he came upon this home, the de Graffenreid home. And he threatened Luis and Nathan with, uh, with a shotgun. And Luis's response is astounding. She said, young man, I am a Christian lady. I don't believe in no violence. So put down that gun and sit down. I do not allow any violence in my home. And he put his weapon down on the couch. And he said simply, please, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in three days. So what did Louise do? She sent her husband to go get Riley some dry socks. And she began to make him breakfast. Within a few minutes, she had prepared bacon and eggs, toast, milk, and coffee, and she had set a table for three in her dining room with her very best napkins. She took Riley's shaking hand, 
in her own and said, young man, we need to give thanks that you came here and that you're safe. She said a prayer and she asked him if there was anything he would like to say to the Lord. He was so shocked that he couldn't think of anything. And she just said, well, then recite scripture. Just say, Jesus wept. Later, when asked about that, she said, it was the first verse I came and I thought he would remember that. Jesus wept. After breakfast, she had to hold his hand a second time as he was sharing about his family, and she learned about the death of his grandmother, who was very dear to him. Riley, trembling all over, said that no one had ever cared about him in his life. But she said, young man, I love you, and God loves you. God loves all of us, every one of us, especially you. Jesus died for you because he loves you so much. While all this was going on, a nearby neighbor had seen Riley enter the home, thought that something was amiss, and had called the police. So as they were sitting in the house, they heard the sirens of police cars arriving. And Riley became very agitated, insisting that the police would kill him if they came in the house. Louise told Riley to stay where he was, and she went out to go talk to the police officers. Several police cars had surrounded the home. They had guns ready. They had created a barricade. They had taken shelter behind those cars, expecting Riley to open fire on them. And instead, they found themselves face-to-face with Louise, And she was standing on her porch and she was saying the exact same thing to the police officers that she had said to Riley. Put those guns away. I do not allow any violence in here. Who's going to mess with a woman like that, by the way? So they put their guns back in their holsters. And Louise and Nathan linked arms with Riley and they walked him out. And they peacefully put him in the squad car. He was taken back to prison. Nobody was harmed. The story of what happened to the other convicts uh, is the exact opposite. Three of them had come upon a family that was having a backyard barbecue. The husband of that family had heard about the escapees, so had armed himself. There was, a, there was a fight, and the father himself was shot. They took the wife hostage, drove across state lines. They were eventually um, captured, and the widow was freed. Another one of the fugitives was killed in a shootout with police a month later. But Luis's refusal... To not be, to, refusal to be fearful not only saved Riley's life, but it actually began to write an even more beautiful story. Louise and Nathan were asked to press charges against Riley for holding them hostage in their own home, but they refused to do so. Louise insisted that the boy had done them no harm. She and her husband refused to testify, and charges were completely dropped. He had more than 20 years added to his prison sentence, but Louise continued to correspond with Riley and visit him. She asked for a photo of him so she could put it in her family album. She would come and visit him in prison and pray for him, and he would say in an interview later that she exhibited the kind of relationship that he wanted to have with God. In 1988, Riley Arsenault became a Christian. He realized that, quote, the meaning, that meeting the de Graffin reads couldn't be coincidence. I realized someone had to be looking over me, end quote. Louise actively worked for Riley's release, which eventually happened in 1995. She died three years later, and Riley was asked to speak at her funeral. He said in her funeral, she was real Christianity. She had no fear. Riley was among those carrying her coffin to its burial place. 
He now lives happily in Nashville, Tennessee, where he works as a foreman of a tent and awning company. He has a wife and he has a son. He is often asked to tell his story to other people, including the children of a local primary school in Mason, Tennessee, whose principal is one of Louise and Nathan's children. You see, the consequences of that extraordinary encounter in Mason, Tennessee, back in 1984, are still being told today, aren't they? Thanks to the welcome extended by two elderly people, no guns were fired in that home. No one looks back on that day with regret or grief. A man who might have remained a lifelong danger to other people has instead become a respected member of society and a committed follower of Jesus. Louise refused to be motivated by fear and was instead hospitable to the work of the Holy Spirit. Riley came to faith, and now that story has a testimony, and that testimony is powerful. Talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it transforms lives. Back to the story of Peter. Peter took something that was by all rights supposed to be fearful, associating with a Gentile. What might that mean? And instead of caving to fear, he was obedient to God. He chose to see Cornelius not as somebody unclean, unredeemable, or dangerous, but rather as someone who God loves, someone who is worthy of the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus, to repent and to be saved. And it's through Peter's obedience and refusal to give in to fear that the Gentile mission officially takes off, which is why I, and I would assume many of you here, who cannot claim any Jewish ethnicity or heritage, can be called children of God. It's because of the faithfulness of him saying yes to that vision. God does not view any of us as clean or unclean because of our skin or our heritage or our blood. He sees our hearts. Are we God-fearing, like Cornelius, prepared to receive the good news of Jesus in its fullness? Are we receptive to the Holy Spirit's work in our life, and are we hospitable to the Holy Spirit? And for all of us here today, is our motivation fear, or is it obedience? Are there those that we have deemed unworthy of God's love, of his gospel hope, of an opportunity to turn their lives over to him? Do we arm ourselves with protection from that which could defile us or cause harm to us? Or do we arm ourselves with bacon and eggs and an extra seat at the table with the very best napkins and prayer and scripture If we're even close to obedient as Peter or Cornelius or Louise or Nathan or eventually Riley himself, then the Holy Spirit is going to do amazing things through us as well. He's going to write stories that we couldn't possibly imagine. It will bring people to faith. It will shake the rooms that we sit in. It will melt the hardness of fearful hearts. This, my friends is real Christianity. And it is the exact opposite of fear. Amen. Amen. 
as we respond to this word this morning, just as Peter was obedient to the Spirit, just as Cornelius was obedient to the Spirit, just as Louise was obedient to the Holy Spirit, let's sing a couple hymns together that remind us of the work of the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. They're hymns 276 and 293. They'll be on the screen for you as well. But let's sing these together as we respond to this word. Thank you. 